Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Isaac, one of the hosts of In Doubt, as well as the pastor at North Valley Baptist Church in Mission, British Columbia. With me on the show today is a friend and actually someone who's been on the show before. Uh, his name is Steve Kim. In fact, Steve was one of our In Doubt Live event speakers for our first In Doubt Live event, uh, all around sexual identity, which is not what we'll be talking about today. But uh, if you're interested in that event, you can go to indoubt.ca and find old archives of that. Um, yeah, so Steve, after being a follower of Jesus and a husband and a father, he is the Alberta Director of Apologetics Canada. And I'm sure Steve will explain more in a moment, but I'll, I'll say this from their site. Apologetics Canada seeks to equip the local church by providing seminars, conferences, and resources for people to become and stay fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Also, it seeks to inspire and challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. So it's great to have you on the show again today, Steve. Hey, thanks for uh, inviting me on. It's, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's so good. And I mean, if, if you're interested, you can go back. I'm trying to think of when it was, probably in 2015, when we we did some initial interviews with you and mm-hmm. um, I was able in, in one of those interviews I explained a little bit about our first time that we met together uh, which was when you oh yeah that's right pretended to be a Buddhist uh, <laughs> in my world religions class and I had to so just for listeners our prof who's Andy Steiger the president of Apologetics Canada he had each of his students I was one of his students have to share the gospel to his Buddhist friend and yeah, we go into this room just with you and, you know, you do such a great job. I mean, you, I, you totally convinced me and it was scary. <laughs> Everyone was so scared. So again, just want to thank you for that, for that time. Oh yeah. That was such a memorable thing. Uh, Andy and I did it a couple of times. I hope that we'll have a chance to do it again somewhere, Please. somehow. It's That'd so be a lot good. Of fun. It's so good. And I think it's a really important exercise. I think it's very, very important. So it was very good. Um, yeah, so I guess for people, though, that are a little bit unaware of who you are, maybe just take a moment, just hear from you a bit about just your personal life now and, yeah, what Apologetics Canada is all about. Um, my story isn't all that different from many Christians, uh, in a sense, because I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up a very in a very devout Roman Catholic household, and so the idea of repentance was very familiar to me. Uh, you know, I, I would go to confessionals um, every week, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, but at some point, I realized that this was just something I inherited from my family. Um, and so this wasn't really my faith. I mean, I knew the words, right? Uh, salvation, repentance, forgiveness, all, all those kinds of things. Um, but it didn't mean anything to me. So it wasn't until at the age of 16, after my father passed away, I realized without anyone enforcing my uh, faith, I wasn't really owning it. And so I was apathetic for a, for a number of years. And then later down the road, I met some really solid Christian friends. Um, and the way they lived out their lives really, in a sense, puzzled me because I'm like, here's a Christian family. Uh, so I went to see my friend's family and just the way they live their lives. I'm like, they actually take the Bible seriously. This is weird. I mean, and this is me saying, you know, coming from a rather devout Catholic family, right? Even then at some point I lost touch with that devotion. And so, you know, when I came across people who lived 
actually lived out what they said they believed was actually weird to me. Um, but at some point that was so attractive to me, I said, I want this for myself. I, I see that peace. I see that harmony in the family, none of which we have in our family. So how do I get there? Um, I realized they took their Bible seriously. Jesus was real to them. And so it, it had to be real for me too. And so I, that's how I actually came to know. I, I like to say that that's around the time when I came to know not just the religion, but I came to know the person behind the religion. I came to know Jesus personally. Um, so good. But yeah, but then the, the I wasn't out of the woods yet because the faith was something that I inherited. And now I had to hash everything out intellectually. Um, and that's how I got into apologetics and... Here I am working for a nonprofit organization that does exactly that. Yeah, that that's so good. Um, just out of curiosity, obviously you do work for Apologetics Canada. What was your first encounter with maybe with an author, speaker, book in the apologetics kind of arena that you first read or that you came up with? Yeah, um, I know exactly which one it was and who recommended the book to me. Um, so in 2003, uh, after a six-month stay in South Korea, which is where I was actually born and raised. I was going to go teach English there, but things didn't pan out. So I returned to Canada and I started attending a French church. Um, I joined the worship team. Um, I you know, started attending regularly. And then um, one day I was talking about how I was struggling with some of these questions. And the drummer friend of mine, I still remember his name, Jason Simpson, who, by the way, is an actor, and every now and then I see him on screen. It's weird. Um, he actually recommended Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. He said, it answers so many questions. I think you'll find it really helpful. Um, I picked it up. Man, I plowed through that book really quickly, and then I moved on to the second volume, right? The Case for Faith by the same author, and then on it went from there. And that's how I got... One thing really good about these two books is that Lee Strobel himself isn't the expert he's interviewing the experts yeah right so that's how i got to know a lot of these names william lane craig jp moreland ravi zacharias right um and all of these names and so that's how i got started mm, that's so good I, I love that and i think many could say that lee strobel was sort of the gateway for them into the apologetics arena because of his book and all, all that kind of stuff so that, that's really cool well thanks steve let let's jump in here because i i know time's gonna go really quickly uh we're gonna talk a little bit about human rights which is a very timely topic right now. This is something that you suggested. So to start us off, Steve, what do you understand human rights to be kind of generally speaking about? I mean, it's kind of thrown all over the place right now, thrown around, but do we really get it? And also do, do people have differing opinions on what exactly human rights is? Yeah, human rights are basically norms that are there to protect people from abuse. So we talk about responsibility. We have responsibility to one another, but why do we have that responsibility? It is because of who you are and on the basis of who you are, you have certain rights. Uh, so for example, you have the so-called negative rights. You have the, the rights to be free from violence, for example, right? Um, because you're a human being, you may have positive rights. Uh, that means you have entitlement to certain things like education, healthcare, you know, equal treatment under the law, so on and so forth. So rights are basically duties and responsibilities, right? That we owe to each other, really. Um, that That's the basis for it. But 
in terms of whether people generally agree on it, um, I think they kind of quibble about, for example, some people don't believe in positive rights. Some people don't believe that we have rights to education or you know, medical care and so on and so forth. But we do have, even those people believe that we do have negative rights, the right to be free from oppression, free from harm and violence, those kinds of things. So people quibble about those things, but human rights right now is sort of the predominant way of understanding human ethics today. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so maybe you could say that in more of a principle level, people agree, but the practical implications of it and what things people have rights to, those things that people will, they'll go back and forth. Right. Yeah. So for one quick example is that in the sort of the, you know, abortion debate, pro-choice, pro-life, those kinds of things, um, the pro-choice side will say, well, women have the right to bodily autonomy. That That is their right. Um, the pro-life side will typically say, yes, it is their right, but your right to bodily autonomy is not an unqualified good. Your right to your bodily autonomy stops at the moment it harms another human being. Right. Right. So I have the right to swing my arm. I have that freedom to do with my body as I will. But my right to swing my arm stops right where your nose starts, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so, so people talk about, you know, is this a right or how far does this right go? Those kinds of things. Yeah. But generally people uh, agree. Yes, I, I believe in human rights. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So um, understanding that aspect then, what happens when there are no human rights? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because um, in a lot of ways, we're seeing what happens, right? So uh, after the, the death of George Floyd, uh, we saw riots happening all across the country in the U.S. and really uh, protests breaking out all across the world because they saw the horrendous nature of what happens when somebody's human rights are violated. Now, the 20th century is especially filled with atrocities that occurred precisely because we ignored people's human rights. Now, when it comes to World War II, most people think, you know, Nazi Germany. Um, I do think about Nazi Germany, but I'm from South Korea. And so uh, a very prominent part of my World War II vocabulary is Imperial Japan. Mm. And so um, I often refer to Unit 731. Okay. Uh, now... Our listeners may not be very familiar with what Unit 731 is. Unit 731 was a biochemical warfare research center uh, that was, and th there were uh, a number of them, but probably the most infamous one is Unit 731 that was installed near what is today Harbin in China. And, and in this facility, there were POWs that had all kinds of experiments done on them and their humanity was completely removed. In fact, they had a word uh, to refer to these test subjects and these Japanese researchers called them Maruta, which literally means logs, right? So instead of, you know, one person or two persons, it was one log or two logs, right? So when they called on a prisoner, they would say Maruta number such and such. It's not, you know, Jim Bob, or it's not anything like that. It's Maruta, your log number, such and such. And now the kinds of things that were done. Now, uh, let me read just this quick excerpt from this book. 
called Unit 731 Testimony by Hal Gold. Now, this is a bit disturbing. So if our listeners, if you have little ones nearby, you might want to turn this down, listen to this yourself on your own. And then if you think it's, you know, if your children are mature enough to listen to this, maybe you can play it louder later if you want to. But there's, this is how it goes. Even with the intestines and organs exposed, a person does not die immediately. It is the same physical situation as ordinary surgery under anesthesia in which a person is operated on and restored. Witnesses at vivisections report that the victim usually lets out a horrible scream when the cut is made and that the voice stops soon after that. The researchers then conduct their examination of the organs, remove the ones that they want for study, then discard what is left of the body. Somewhere in the process, the victim dies through blood loss or removal of vital organs. And then it goes on, the book goes on to say, Pingfang, which is where Unit 731 was uh, constructed, Pingfang was equipped for disposing of its consumed human lab materials with three large incinerators. Calling them crematoria would bestow undue dignity upon them. A former member who assisted in the burning commented, the bodies always burnt up fast because all the organs were gone. The bodies were empty. Mm. So the 20th century has a lot of these kinds of things happening, right? And then um, in 1948, so about three years after World War II was, was over, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was produced and adopted. So that's sort of the background there. Yeah. So what does that say then in, the, in this Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is interesting? Mm-hmm. So Universal Declaration of Human Rights was produced again in 1948. This was in direct response to the kinds of atrocities that people saw committed during the war. And the preamble, so in, in any sort of a legal document or, or you know laws or things like that, the preamble basically tells you why these things, why they're going to make this declaration or why these laws are going to be made, right? So it always starts with whereas, whereas. So you, you might have seen that in some legal documents or laws and such. Now, in the preamble, at the very beginning of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this is how it starts. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So notice what happened there. This is the basis for the this Declaration of Human Rights, recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. That is the foundation they're saying of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So what's funny is this, Typically, when, when you talk about human rights and things like that, a lot of people who are particularly religious will appeal to some kind of a religious foundation. But when they were putting this together, they couldn't exactly do that. They couldn't just do it from a particular religious point of view. After all, this is United Nations, right? And so all they could do was just make this very vague reference to the inherent dignity, equally inalienable rights. And notice that these things are recognized in other words, this is not something the, the inherent dignity is, it means you have value as a human being by virtue of you being a human being. So your dignity, 
which is the basis for your human rights. So you have human rights because you have human value, you have human dignity. This is inherent. Nobody gave it to you. You're born with it. In other words, the state doesn't give it to you. The state has to recognize it in you. And then on this basis, you have equal and inalienable rights. So every other human being, if you know, because they're a human being, because you're a human being, should have equal rights on the basis of our common humanity. And then these rights, again, because it's based on inherent dignity, now it's inalienable rights. So that's how the Universal Declaration of Human Rights starts, which is very fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. It is fascinating. And it just, it, it makes me think about the, the fact that obviously as Christians, from a Christian worldview, we say amen to the fact of the inherent quality in each person and, you know, the equal, the inalienable rights. However, what's fascinating, I think, is that here they're not taking from a Christian worldview because it's the United Nations. They're, you, you, like you said, they recognize something, but you have to ask the question, well, where did that come from, right? This, this recognition of something that's there. Uh, let me just ask you this. Do most, let's say, atheists or agnostics, I mean, they, they, would, they would generally agree with this, I, I would think, at least in, uh, maybe not in theory, but at least in practice, they would agree with this. But how do, how do they conceive of the idea of human rights? To them, is it something made up or is it something that they also recognize as a, like a law of nature kind of thing? Um, it, it depends. I remember a number of years ago at Apologetics Canada, we had a chance to invite Dr. Andy Bannister and then also the executive director of the BC Humanists Association by the name of Ian Bushfield. We were able to sit down together at Westside Church to talk about the foundation of human rights. And on the one hand, it seemed that Mr. Bushfield recognized that we have human dignity and so forth, but he thought, he believed that the concept of human rights is something that that we as a society, on the basis of our recognition of our human nature, common humanity, and the value that we have, then we construct this as a society. And so it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, and now in a few moments time, we're going to talk about why I don't think that really works. Um, but just that the idea that human rights, if this is not an objective feature of reality, and if this is something that's purely a social construct that's subjective, then we run into all kinds of problems. Then what happens is, for example, how can I, right, justifiably condemn what people do in another culture? So can I in 21st century Canada condemn what Nazi Germany did in mid 20th century Germany? I, I mean, everything they did, our listeners might find this fascinating, but um, all the Holocaust stuff that Nazi Germany did, it was all completely legal in Germany because they had already passed all the laws to oppress the gypsies and the Jews and the homosexuals and the Jehovah's Witnesses, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, I just finished listening to actually uh, another uh, conversation with uh, an atheist and a Christian, and they were talking about morality, which we're going to jump into in just a moment here, because it all it fits, um, obviously. And it, it was amazing that this atheist was, he, he respectfully, like he held consistently to what he believed, because he basically, 
the Christians sort of led him to kind of say that, you know, if he went to a tribe somewhere in the world today, that it's moral and it's good and okay to hunt down another human being, kill them and eat them. That this atheist was able to say, even though I personally would not do that, I understand that that is a moral thing. And uh, it was amazing. It was actually really eye-opening to hear, okay, so this does not apply universally in their perspective. It's not objective. It's not universal. It's, it's based on these social constructs. So some atheists are, you know, they're willing to bite the bullet and say, hey, you know what? Uh, at the end of the day, I am a relativist. It, it's a matter of what kind of a society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in the kind of a society where people can kill each other to you know, consume one another? Or do we want to live in the kind of a world where you know, everybody is protected from such things? Right, right. right? And yes. I've spoken many times on this idea of cultural relativism. And cultural relativism has all kinds of problems because it basically boils morality or ethics down to a law or whatever the culture decides. Um, and if that's the case, then we can look at any number of horrendous things that happened as part of the cultural norm and say, well, was that wrong or not? <laughs> or was, is it wrong just from our perspective? Or, you know, so in other words, is, is there something objectively evil about, say, slavery? Right? Or is this, you know, is this just wrong in my culture? Right, right. Right. So is does this apply universally or is this just in my culture? Another problem with uh, a related problem with cultural relativism is that uh, social reformation by definition is evil. So people like Martin Luther King Jr., who fought institutionalized racism, right? By definition, he's an evil man. And that's crazy. Nobody would, especially in the aftermath of everything that we're seeing after the death, death of George Floyd, nobody would actually think that. But if you hold to cultural relativism, that is where it leads us. So I don't, So in, in other words, I think people may pay lip service to the idea that the, these are all cultural social constructs and whatnot. But I think deep inside, we are all committed to the idea that this is actually an objective feature of reality. Yes. In the same way that people recognize that something like what Martin Luther King Jr. did was right and good, um, mm -hmm. it's the same way that what the UN put together there, there is that they recognize this inherent quality in people as well. So mm -hmm. there was this objective, objective reality. So let, let's continue on here. So we've already kind of dipped into this, but let's just um, go into a little bit more. Then how does human rights relate to morality, which we've already basically talked about. So maybe we can kind of skip over that a little bit more. But you, you talk about that objective morality needs several things to be um, established. So maybe you can just explain to us what those things are for objective morality. Yeah, um, just as a caveat, especially since we're talking about, you know, atheists and agnostics too. Um, when I talk about morality, and as a theist especially, often my atheist friends object saying, hey, I don't believe in God, but I'm a good person. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about whether, you know, you need to believe in God to be a good person, whether you need to believe in God to hold to, like to, to believe in uh, human rights. What I am uh, talking about is if God is not there, can we even have such categories as good and evil? right and wrong. So it's not, sometimes people raise this question, can we be good without God? 
Uh, sometimes people misunderstand that to me. Do I have to believe in God to be good? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, can we be good without God? Not just the belief in God, but God himself. If God is not there, can we even have objective ethics or morality? Um, so that, that's what I'm talking about. Now, when we're talking about uh, human rights, human rights, if you think about it, is a, is a moral category. It has to do with, well, right and wrong, right? Good and evil, those kinds of things. So if you violate human rights, that is an evil thing, that is wrong, right? And, and when you uphold somebody's rights, you know, that is a good thing, that is a right thing. So this is a moral category. So that means we have to ask the question, can your worldview support objective good and evil, objective, right and wrong. So the thing that I think we need to have objective morality is first objective moral values and second objective moral duties. So objective moral values is basically good and evil. Uh, and objective moral duty has to do with right and wrong. Now, people might think, aren't they the same thing? Um, actually, it's not because what is the good thing to do often is also the right thing to do. People think, well, good and right are one of the same thing. But here's a quick case where I can show you it's not the case. So for example, Isaac, let's say you and me, we are soldiers, we're in the army, we're fighting insurgents somewhere in Afghanistan. While we're fighting, a grenade lands in between the two of us, right? And I duck out of the way. So I just kind of leave you to your own devices and I duck out of the way to take cover. Now, did I do something wrong? Uh, no, I, 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 have, I have the right to preserve myself. Now, if I saved you, if I pushed you out of the way at the risk of my own life, that would be a good thing to do. But um, if I just duck out of the way to get away from it and let you sort of do your own thing to, you know, let you take cover on your own, that's not necessarily wrong. But what if, let's flip the scenario a bit, I jump on the grenade and I cover it with my body so that it kills me, but it saves your life. Now, did I have to do that? No. So I wasn't obligated to do it. I, I didn't have any duty to do that, but was it a good thing? Yes, absolutely. It just goes above and beyond the call of duty. So here's a good thing that I had no duty to do. And so then we can see that these two things are separate. And then a third thing that I throw in there, it, it, you don't need this for morality to be objective, but I say you need moral accountability if that morality is going to be meaningful, right? So the, what we mean by that, an easier word for it, a simpler word for it that we're familiar with would be justice. Right. Um, so I, I think we need those things. And so then the question is, can your worldview support those things? Right, right. So, okay, so then with that being said, when we think about, because you, you kind of categorize worldviews in three different ways, pantheism, naturalism, so God only, nature only, and then monotheism, which is God and nature. So you know, obviously everyone who's listening will know which category will best fit, but maybe can you just show us how that fits best with uh, the God in nature, the monotheistic understanding? Right. And so the, this is, if you look at different worldviews out there, different religions, there are lots and lots of them out there. So it's, it's kind of hard to take human rights and run it through the grid of each worldview. 
But thankfully, if you look at the different worldviews, you can broadly categorize them into three categories, like you mentioned. So there's only God. So that'd be like religions like, for example, uh, Taoism, Hindu, certain forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, whereas pantheistic, all is God. And then there's another kind of worldview that says this world is all there is, and that'd be your typical physicalism, naturalism, those kinds of things. And then the kind of a view that says there are the world and God. Now, the reason I, I think it doesn't really work in the first two, the kind of nature-only view or God-only view is this. In the sort of nature-only view, all that we are boils down to particles in motion, ultimately. What am I? I am a human being. But what is a human being? At the end of the day, uh, a very strict naturalist will have to say, at the end of the, end of the day, you are really particles in motion. This becomes a huge problem because there is nothing good or evil about one domino falling and striking the next one. And that's basically what we have on this view of the world is just dominoes, just cascading, right? So um, I usually use this illustration. Let's say we have two dominoes, A and B, and we have at least two possible scenarios where A falls and knocks domino B over, or the other way around, domino B falls and knocks domino A over. And then I ask the question, well, which one is evil? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? You chuckle, right? and like most people do, because they realize that's a ridiculous question. There's nothing- It's arbitrary. Yeah, there's nothing good or evil about a domino falling and striking the next domino. Exactly. And if that is the view of our world where we are at the end of the day, at the most kind of the fundamental level of reality, we're just nothing but particles colliding. That's literally what we have. So there's nothing good or evil about these particles colliding. It doesn't matter how many more you have. You're not going to get something new out of this. So, okay. So I use the illustration of just two dominoes. Um, let's say we have 10 dominoes. Does anything change? No, it's just more of the same. If we had a billion dominoes, we would just have more of the same. If we had a trillion dominoes, we would have more of the same. If we had 10 to the 80th power of dominoes, which by the way, I am told that scientists tell us that this is the, the approximate number of all of the elementary particles in our known universe, you wouldn't get anything new out of it, right? So if that worldview holds true, then there is no starting point for good or evil Never mind right and wrong. So that's that's the reason why I don't think human rights can be grounded in naturalism ultimately, except as a complete pure social construct. The reason pantheism is problematic to me is this. If you think about morality, morality is a personal quality, right? It's something that is established between persons, but it goes a little bit beyond just personal, it's actually interpersonal. I, like I said, it actually gets established between persons, right? And so if there were, if there were nobody else in the world and I'm just all by myself, I'm the only person in the universe, what happens to morality, right? Morality starts to break down. Morality is something that gets established between persons. It's an interpersonal kind of a quality. Right. So in order for morality to make sense, we need that kind of individuation of persons. You are you and I am me. Now, in many pantheistic worldviews, what happens is the, the whole reality is just really God. And this individuation is really a, an illusion. 
right? You and I are both in certain Hinduistic views. We're all just part of the Brahman. And this is Maya. This is an illusion. You are really part of this. You're like this wave coming out of the ocean. I'm another wave come out, coming out of another part of the ocean. But we're, we're ultimately all made of the same kind of thing. And so our individuation is an illusion. And if that's the case, I don't see how human rights would could be grounded there because again, morality has to be an interpersonal quality. And insofar as human rights is a moral category, we need that individuation. Now, when you look at the Christian worldview, for example, right now we have individuation is real, right? We have personhood. In fact, the fundamental reality at the bottom of reality is a communion of persons in, in the Godhead, right? The Trinity, right? It's not a Unitarian view. It's a Trinitarian view. So I think that's why it, out of not just a theistic worldview, but I think the Christian worldview makes the best sense of human rights. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. As we finish up here, Steve, there's so much here, and I'm sure that listeners are maybe a little bit of a headache because there's lots, but this is good. It's, it's good because there's lots to think about, and you've been very helpful. Um, as we finish up, what comes to mind when I ask the question to you, how does the gospel connect to human rights and what we've been talking about here? So like I said earlier, the basis for human rights is human value. It is the recognition of inherent dignity, right? That this dignity, the value that we're born with, that's what gives rise to human rights. Now, when it comes to the Christian gospel, what it says is, okay, humanity is created in a special way. We are created in the image of God. So the fancy lingo for it in theological circles is imago Dei, right? The, the image of God. We're created in that kind of a special way so that we carry value. Furthermore, God pays this, the greatest compliment that he could pay to humanity by doing what? By becoming one of us and coming to us. And that's one of the craziest things about Christianity that in, in most other religions, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get to God or you're trying to attain some kind of a salvation equivalent on your own effort. But then in Christianity, what you have is God coming to us and then living with us, suffering for us, dying for us, right? So that we can be with him again. And that's how much God cares about us, is that he's willing to become one of us and suffer with us. Uh, now, typically in, an, say, ancient Greco-Roman mythology or whatever, when a god comes down as a, you know, disguised as a human or something like that, that's usually bad news. They're here to get what it is they want. But in, in Christianity, what we have is God coming, humbling himself, and then suffering for us, right? That's how much he loves us. And so absolutely, we have this right. We have a great basis for affirming each other's rights. Um, and each other's values that give rise to those rights. Yeah, that's so good, Steve. And as a last question here, kind of recognizing human rights in this kind of more uh, kind of Christian perspective, understanding the image of God, how can Christian young adults best apply the recognizable and God-ordained human rights um, in, their, in their everyday life? Right. I think the first thing is to see each other as human beings. And now this might sound a little odd, like, don't we do that all the time? But you would be surprised how quickly we dehumanize people that we don't like. Um, and it, it, the language that we use 
with each other to one another is very revealing. So often cops, right, would refer to criminals as convicts or something of that sort or garbage or something like that. Criminals would refer to police officers as pigs, right? Um, now this might seem a little minor, but I mean, if you look at the kind of language that was used, say by Nazi Germany or the Hutus in Rwanda, right? What you see is whenever there's a genocide, it is always preceded by a campaign of dehumanization. So the Nazis called the Jews rats, the Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches. Uh, during World War II, right, you know, Americans called the Japanese monkeys and the Japanese called the Chinese bugs and so on and so forth, right? So there was a lot of this, this kind of, and so the, the critical thing that we have to do is we need to make sure that we see each other's humanity and think think about the kinds of people that you like to dehumanize. Now, a, a very simple example of it is this. We like to dehumanize politicians that we don't agree with. Sure. Right? If it's Donald Trump, for example, well, he's a racist, he's a bigot, he's an idiot, that kind of a thing. Um, and if you're a very conservative person in Canada, you might say, you know, Trudeau is an idiot, you know, and th those kinds of things. Well, you might disagree with say Justin Trudeau's policies, but you know what? He's got a name, uh, he's got a family, he's got his wounds, his hurts, his vulnerabilities. Like he is a human being and we need to start seeing people as such. And one thing that I found really helpful is just take some time to get to know the other person. I, I think it's really important to take the time to get to know somebody else. And one thing that really helps me personally is I found that people are humanized in my eyes the most when I see their vulnerabilities. Because at the end of the day, that's how you build trust is by exchanging vulnerabilities, right? So um, Isaac, when you and I met, we probably did something like, well, maybe, maybe in our case, it's a little different, but typically when people meet, right? I say, hey, uh, my name is Steve. Right now, I, made myself vulnerable before you. Now you know something about me, right? And I don't know the same thing about you. Now, if you at that point don't reciprocate, trust is not built. But when you reciprocate by saying, hi, my name is Isaac, and you make yourself vulnerable before me in the same way that I did, now there's a small, there's a modicum of trust that is built. And the more you do that, the more trust is built, the more you get to see the humanity in the other person. It's really important, I think. If there is a particular issue that you and that person just really don't agree with, talk about something else. Talk about family. Talk about, well, maybe family issues, right? Or um, really critical thing is, if I could distill all of this into one word, listen. Mm-hmm. Listen, listen, listen. In fact, when I teach a class on, well, how do I share my, how to share the gospel with somebody else who doesn't believe in Jesus, what I tell people is, well, here's an exercise for you. This week, find somebody that you don't normally talk to. Find somebody that you know, you know, you disagree on many things with, and just sit down with that person and just listen. And the goal is not to correct that person. The goal is not to refute that person, just 
listen. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. Um, that would be my recommendation. Yeah. I love that. That's good. And like, like you said at the beginning, it sounds kind of funny. Just recognize human beings as human beings. But yeah. as you flesh it out, you start to see, oh, yikes, maybe there's lots of areas where we don't really do that in practice, but it's it's so essential. So I think that's that's awesome, Steve. So just a kind of overview of everything, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to go over this. And like you mentioned, we will have you back on again to discuss a little bit more heaven and hell, different things like that. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much for being on the show and we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, well, Isaac, thanks so much for inviting me back. It was great fun to be with you again. Hey, thanks for joining us today. And a special thanks to Steve Kim for coming on the show and talking with us today. You can follow Apologetics Canada, which Steve is a part of, by heading to their website, apologeticscanada.com. On their site, they have resources, as well as a podcast of their own, so you should go and check it out and take a listen. And make sure to join us next week as Daniel talks with Julia Baisley on the serious but important topics of pornography and human trafficking. And as always, remember, you can go and check out many of our other podcasts as well as articles and other resources at indoubt.ca. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.